Hey everyone, Paul here. Well, today's episode is a bit different. Occasionally I repost on my podcast times where I get to be on the other end of the interview. And I recently had a really productive conversation with my friend Rick Gutterson, who hosts the Behind the Image Leadership Podcast. Rick has actually been on the podcast before, back when I did a couple episodes called Reconstruction Stories, so you can go back and check those out. He's one of my oldest friends and a remarkable leader in the areas of grief support and nonprofit or business leadership. He's a counselor, consultant, and leadership coach who did his graduate work at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Rick brought me on his Behind the Image Leadership podcast to discuss some of my work in analyzing the role of story and theology in the formation of our values and behaviors. What was so fun about this conversation and what made it somewhat unique from the normal points of application I'm usually addressing on Deep Talks is that Rick's focus is on the area of leadership coaching and in areas like counseling. And he does his work in contexts that are not specifically faith-based. So to have a conversation about how theology affects businesses that have no conscious awareness of theology was really an insightful experience for both of us. I highly recommend subscribing to Rick's Behind the Image Leadership podcast. You'll find a link in the description below, and I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for, for joining me on the Behind the Image Leadership Podcast today. I'm really excited to to have you join me, and uh, I, I just want to jump right into the the topic because I know we've got a, both a lot to say about everything uh, regarding values and beliefs in, in incorporating them in leadership. But you you bring kind of a, a unique or kind of a special perspective on the idea of a beliefs, and so I kind of want to just have you just kind of share where you first kind of jumped into this topic and why it's such an important topic to you and, and um, kind of where you've studied or seen this kind of approach uh, uh, be of importance in your professional life. Yeah, thanks, Greg. This is really fun to get to do this together. And, you know, we go way back and uh, not all of our conversations had this much meaning. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, we had we had two options in playing this out, right? Yep. Uh, I guess we'll come back to the question in a second. <laughs> but the, we, either we have something really profound and meaningful or we could talk about random high school memories for 45 minutes. And, you know, both could be equally entertaining for different reasons, of definitely, course. But definitely. I maybe think we'll, it's going to be fun <laughs> maybe we'll to do, explore this with you. Maybe we'll do an outtakes episode where we're covering our, our favorite moments from 80s wrestling and early 90s wrestling. And I'm sure that will get just as much attention. But <laughs> we'll collect Clearly, our belief system states that 80s and 90s wrestling is of high importance and high it value. Is. So <laughs> maybe that somehow can incorporate into today's discussion. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, talk about this uh, this topic of beliefs and what kind of your background is in that topic and why you found it to be an incredibly important topic. Yeah. So um, I did graduate work at Bethel Seminary, which this might be kind of a unique conversation compared to some of your other guests in the specific fields that their expertise is. Uh, makes contributions in. My background is in a really niche field of theology and philosophy that some could call like philosophical theology. And in my master's work, uh, I became really um, interested in the work of what we would call even a, a unique, an even more unique subdiscipline in that realm called cultural theology. So what cultural theology is about is about helping people assess within their cultural context, reading cultural stories, the stories that we tell ourselves in our own culture. 
And all of those stories happen to have particular claims about what the true story is of the world and our place in it. So that's an area that I've given a lot of energy and attention to. The, uh, I, I host a podcast and uh, a, a major a significant portion of my attention on that podcast is dedicated to helping people think about stories and how stories connect to our values, to what we believe, and then ultimately the way the fruits of our values are made manifest in our lives and in the symbols that we cherish. So that's, uh, that's a particular area of interest for me. Um, in my, my seminary, in my studies at seminary, which was an academic track, I mean, I'm in vocational ministry as a pastor, but uh, I was in, you know, seminaries can have your sort of masters of divinity, which are primarily training people to be pastors out in the field. And then there's more academic tracks. Mine was more of an academic track. And in that academic track, I became uh, much more conversant with psychology, um, intersection of psychology and philosophy, uh, intersection of theology and science, things that were not part of my upbringing. At least we didn't really have, uh, and we grew up in the same subculture, we didn't necessarily have a high view of the sciences and the contributions of disciplines like psychology. And it was in seminary that I uh, discovered the work of a behavioral scientist, a cognitive scientist named Robert Keegan. And Robert Keegan coined the term meaning-making. And Keegan's thesis was is that we as humans, as human species, one of the things that separates us from, as far as we know, all other species on the planet is that we have this fundamental drive for meaning in ways that, as far as we know, you know, animals don't in exhibit. Um, and we're also storied creatures. And this isn't just the work of Keegan, but there's also uh, plenty of philosophers out there that highlight this unique thing about humans as a species. We're storied creatures, and we search for meaning. So as children, we get that appetite fed to us. We are fed a story by those that are our primary caretakers, um, whether that's our parents, whether we're some other primary caretaker in our life, and also in the subcultures we inhabit. So you and I, Rick, we grew up in the same church, the same school. And so we had a, a subculture that had a particular story, right? It was the way um, this story was told to us was to help us deal with the questions that we have about meaning, purpose, and significance. So we all grow up in some sort of story. Um, even if that's not in a religious context or in a faith tradition, right? We're all told some sort of story. And uh, where our beliefs come into play, our beliefs are the, in some ways, shape or form, the fruit of that story. It's maybe the thing that we use to connect ourselves to that particular story. So it's something I like to call our guiding story. And we all have a guiding story um, as storied creatures. Um, and then, again, the fruit of that in our lives is that those stories that we believe to be true about the world, reality, our place in it, what's the purpose of life, do I play any significant role in life's overarching purpose, from that story we get our values, right? So as we learn these stories, whether they're just Aesop's fables, whether they're biblical stories, whether they're superhero stories, all of these stories show us things about values. 
And then those values are made manifest in our lives in what we actually do with our life. So there's this inseparable attachment between our values and our actions, the values that we hold to, and even the symbols that we cherish, the art that surrounds us, the stories that we continue to consume. You know, that's, that's really interesting. I'm thinking about, I mean, I, I love stories. I love movies. Uh, I, I didn't grow up reading a whole lot of fiction books because that's a whole other episode about ADHD and reading. <laughs> uh, so the stories came alive, though, much more for me in, in the form of uh, a movie, something on the big screen that can just cr- grab your attention yes. for two hours. And, and even now, you know, uh, you know, I was a big comic book reader growing up and but I've always loved stories. And so as a public speaker or as now in this podcast world, uh, the power of telling a story is amazing. But I guess I've never used the word story when it comes to beliefs. And that's a, I really found that interesting that you shared that because, you know, the question I wrote down uh, and something I've always kind of thought through is like, where do your beliefs come from? What are what truly shape your beliefs? And, I, and I, the first two words that come to mind for me are your, your life experiences or, or your education. But really, when you combine those two, that, that's really a story that is what you're saying, correct? That, that these two kind of uh, the, the story of your life experiences or the story of how you're educating yourself, whether it's through academia or through, you know, artistic expression, you know, movies, pop culture, either way, it's a form of education, right? So, so do you, when, when you're talking about the, the power of story and how it shapes our beliefs, are those kind of two of the kind of pieces of framework that come to mind when you're thinking about how story essentially creates or shapes or, or adjusts our, our belief systems? And definitely. And even when you, you talk about public speaking and you think about those people in your life that you have heard speak publicly, those teachers in your life, those professors in your life that you most resonated with, and chances are they were really good storytellers, right? Uh, and that's, this is one of the things, narrative, narratives do things that like simple rhetoric, I, sh- I don't want to say simple rhetoric, there's a difference in the way that we process a story than in the way we process like reading a science textbook or an engineering paper. There's all these implicit connections that our brains are, have been finely tuned to look for and search for in stories. And so a lot of the things that we believe can be things that we haven't like rationally thought through. It's not that we could necessarily pinpoint and say, that's a specific moment where I came to this belief. The beliefs emerge from the stories that we've been taught to believe are true. And um, so we're storied creatures. This is why like we, we consume a lot of stories. I like you, Rick, you know, I think in school it was like, Maybe occasionally for a book report, I read like a Hardy Boys book, you know, to get that personal pan pizza at, at Pizza Hut. Once you got all your <laughs> the book it club, your right? book it club the little stars. stickers. And, yeah. Um, Not a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> a sponsor. <laughs> otherwise, apologies to Mrs. Rudolph and whoever else was my English teachers, but I never read fiction. I just, um, you know, for various reasons, I don't know what it was. Um, but like you, I consumed still a lot of different stories in movies and television in comic books, but you think about our culture, we have a really high value in American culture for stories. We tell stories probably unlike any other culture in human civilization. And uh, this is made manifest in Hollywood, in Netflix. Certainly there's other places, you know, there's, there's films and television that come out of the UK. And certainly there's a massive like Bollywood scene in India. They have their own stories. But we export our stories to the rest of the world. And um, 
why does everybody connect with them? Well, it's because we're, we're storied creatures and stories do things that they interact with us in, in ways that are just different, uh, different than if you just heard someone make a, an argument, uh, you know, uh, propose some sort of listen to somebody give a debate or participate in a debate. The way we engage with story is very different. And um, it, it seems like it's an inseparable part of the human experience. It's, you know, what's interesting is I'm thinking about these two perspectives, right? I mean, when you think about beliefs and, and the stories or the experiences or the education that kind of fuels them, there's, there's, you bring this really unique perspective as someone who studied it on a theological background or a pastoral expect, you know, and that's, it's usually when we talk about our belief system, it's usually first and foremost thought of a, in a spiritual aspect, right? But my, my background with, as a social worker Beliefs are a huge part of the therapeutic process, right? Mm, yes. So, I mean, you're talking about cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy and exploring the, the the actions that we have, which are fueled by our emotions or our thoughts, and those thoughts are are shaped by those beliefs that are usually subconscious, right? Like you shared earlier. So, it's really interesting to kind of bring these two worlds together, but I, but talking about it from a leadership perspective, right? So, we're seeing these beliefs, right? Um, that that are important, kind of their individual nature, but as leaders, we're we're responsible for influencing. We're responsible for st- strategy and, and guidance, and and ultimately executing like game plans. And so, why, in, in your experience, studying it from one perspective and, and in mind and others, like why is this such an important conversation or an important topic to bring into the leadership platform? Yeah, definitely. Um, because if we don't critically assess the stories that we believe. Um, we act in a way that we might say, well, I have these particular values. So in some ways, Rick, I think we have to differentiate between certain layers or levels of belief, right? I think a lot of people in the West, a lot of people that, that have grown up like, like we have in particular faith traditions that have emphasized right belief, we have thought about it in terms of agreement with particular propositions. So for example, a cat is a mammal. You can believe that, right? But that's just belief in a proposition. And it's a true proposition. It's good to believe that cats are mammals, right? How much that belief actually affects your day-to-day life? You know, probably very little. There's different layers of belief, different layers of knowledge. So we could say there's propositional, and this is work that I'm not coming up with myself, like um, really... There's a brilliant cognitive scientist over at the University of Toronto named John Verveke, who has done just incredible research in and and laying out these what he likes to call the uh, the five P's of knowing. So propositional belief would be the thing we're talking about, like cats are mammals. Well, that's great. So that's just one layer of belief, but there's also different layers of wisdom and knowing, like procedural knowing. So how do you catch a baseball? That's not just a proposition, right? That's actually a procedure that you have to learn by doing it. So sometimes in in leadership, whether you are in a nonprofit setting or in the business world, which I can't really speak to the business world at all. I've always been a nonprofit and in, um, you know, religious institutions. We can say that we have particular beliefs in something. For example, like a cat is a mammal, right? But the thing we really want to critically interrogate is what is being expressed in the fruit of our daily lives? What do we give our time, energy, and attention to? 
What are the symbols around us that we really, really cherish and value? The art that we cherish and value? That shows us a lot more about what we truly believe on these deeper layers than just saying, well, I agree with this particular proposition. So you might say, you know, you might, a lot of institutions like to have stated values, right? They say, we value this as an institution. They put it up on a board somewhere. They have a mission statement, right? And that's really good. I mean, those are good practices to have. But the way you really evaluate what your actual values are, kind of by like reverse engineering that process. And so you start looking at, what, what did I give my time to this week? What did I give my money to this week? What did I give most of my ment? What did I think about the most this week? And that reveals what your actual values are. Um, that, that reveals whether you're aware of it or not, your actual beliefs, much more than just the propositions you think you intellectually adhere to. But it's the story that you're living in. And that's the story made manifest in your daily life. That's the actual story. The actual story you believe is how you act in the world. So that's why it's really important. That's huge. It's huge that you say that. And I, I'm actually working with a client right now about this. And, and I got permission to, to, to share one of the phrases that they were really having a hard time with their culture. And the phrase that this client kept bringing up was, that's not who we are. And in conversation in our coaching meetings, I said, you know, you've been running this organization for 15 years and you're having frustration because the expectations are just not being met. And you use this phrase a lot, but have you ever stopped to write down who you are or to identify who you are to share with other people? And, and they just stopped and I said, no, I haven't. And I said, let's start there because you've got a script running through your head or the way you phrase it. I love it. You've got a story that you've believed about this for a long time. But unless we articulate that onto paper, it's going to be impossible to replicate yourself as a leader, whether it's training your existing team members or hiring the right people. Because yeah. you can pull out a resume all day long and look at their qualifications and their experiences. But if they don't believe the same things you believe, if they don't value the same things that you value. This isn't going to work. And exactly. their qualifications are be thrown out the window. And so as we've been working on that for months, the team has changed. Uh, they brought on the right team members. The place is growing, not just uh, from a financial standpoint, but also the amount of people served. And we haven't talked about fundraising at all. We haven't talked about program changes at all. All we've spent time through is talking about identifying your beliefs, your values, and your culture and bringing on team members that are a representation of you in that area. And it's thriving. It's in a really cool change, but it starts with, uh, there was no script for here's what I believe, but the actions reveal beliefs in situations. So broadening that to all kinds of avenues. And I've seen this in a lot of platforms. Like you said, the, the values on the wall, right? We value uh, friendship. We value whatever. Well, what are the actions revealing, right? So applying that same therapeutic model, that reverse engineering model uh, in, into this thing, like, if I hit the pause button and I just observed your behaviors for a week, I could tell you what you believe. Yes. You prioritize. This is a common one that I, I, I it makes me frustrated, but it's also so common. And I guess I can't hold it to them. Places that value money over mission. They don't script that down, but what do they spend the majority of their time on, right? If our resources, or I'm sorry, if our time is our most valuable resource, well, then what do I invest that resource into? 
If I invest it into things that are profitable, not that profit's a bad thing by any means, but when I make decisions that prioritize money over mission or profits over people, it shows that even if I got a pretty sign on the wall that says we value people, you should put a disclaimer under it that says, but we also value profits more than those people because I just slashed their hours because I wanted to increase the health of my bottom line. So I think if I'm here and I'm listening to this conversation and I'm a leader, one, I'm probably convicted a little bit, right? And that's okay. If they turn us off, that's their problem, not our, not our problem. But the point of it is, I think if we can teach people how to identify these these underlying values or these underlying beliefs, that's a really important thing because we're either going to be really intentional about this process, but just like with pain management in a physical arena or in emotional pain with, with grief or, or healing, if you ignore it, it doesn't mean it's not there. Yes. It's still there. You're yeah. just ignoring it. So from a cultural standpoint, if we ignore our beliefs or we don't do this work, it's what, and maybe you have a phrase that you used to, but I use the word default beliefs or default mm-hmm. leadership where mm-hmm. it's just kind of this, we're on cruise control and our, our beliefs are revealing themselves. I'm just unaware of what they are. I mean, have you seen that play out from a theological or philosophical standpoint or even in, in the people that you've talked to in the past? Oh, totally. I mean, you can look at it in a macro sense, like across institutions, you can talk about individuals, but even just like, like think about it in, for those that are listening, think about it in the context of your own marriage. If you are married, you are always with your spouse consulting your values all the time for every single little purchase. So like my wife and I, we just, you know, we're moving, we're closing on a house tomorrow and we went through a really long process of house hunting and we could gone gone to a bunch of different places that would change a lot of things about our life. Whether we are aware of it or not, in that process of like choosing a house, where you're going to send your kids to school, how you're going to spend your time, we're always consulting our values. It's just a matter or not of if we have clarity on what those values are. So for this particular process, my wife and I, we had clarity in ways that we didn't when we were when we were younger. You know, maybe to put it this way, we hadn't like, you know, Socrates allegedly said, you know, before he was killed that the unexamined life isn't worth living. And in some ways, those, if we don't examine those things, if we don't critically reflect on them, those values that we actually have are still going to be made manifest in our life, but they might be things that we go, I actually don't like that now that it's come out in my life. So this time around, my wife and I, I think we had a lot more intentionality about our values. And so one of them that we said, this is really important to us is like, we realize that we've lived because where we've lived for the last few years has been pretty far away, like out in the sticks. And this go around, we're like, we need people in our life. I think COVID really revealed that, you know, being in isolation, we went, we don't like this feeling. What, what's wrong here? We need to be around people and have community with people. And so being able to understand that that was our value helped us see that there were other values that would be in collision, right? So if I we want to be by people that are close, that means like we might drive to some places a little bit longer, you know, um, like longer commutes to particular places. If there's people that we say, hey, we want to be in community with these particular people. We want our kids to have these experiences. It might mean, in this case, it, mean, it meant for us, it was like, well, um, we're losing, you know, we've lived for the last couple of years, essentially on like a couple of acres, but now we don't. So there's something lost in that. 
there's something lost in that decision. There's the loss of something. But we realize, you know what? While we loved like the outdoor beauty and the, the pond that was nearby, um, we, we realized in consulting our values and reassessing those values that no, community was a value that trumped this sort of individualism that we've really wrestled with. And so that was going to cost us something. And we needed to be aware of the cost in advance. Like, yeah, it's going to be different. We're going to have neighbors that are closer to us. You know, we're going to lose some of our sense of privacy that we might really like. But if this is a value that we're serious about, we're going to be willing to pay the cost. And um, so it's really important that like individuals critically reflect on that and institutions critically reflect on that. Um, I remember sitting with a like a church planter for a, a particular denomination a few years ago, and he was doing an assessment for the particular church I worked at. And they said, hey, you know what, like kind of what's what's been your the number of people in your church community for the last five years? Well, it's hovered around, you know, 400 to 500 people. Has that changed over the last 10 years? Not really. And he's like, well, you're probably just going to stay at that number around 400 to 500 people if you continue to do the practices that you do. Now, if you're like, we want to have a growing community and plant a bunch of other churches, or for, and you don't need to do those sorts of things. But if you want to do that sort of thing, you better realize it's going to require you to change some current practices that might be uncomfortable because they're going to cost you some other value because not all of these values can live in harmony together. And some of the things that we value are not for our good. And that's where it gets, it gets difficult to start seeing that sort of stuff. It's like, this might not have been a value that's for our good. It, it's actually leading to dysfunction in our life. And those are the areas that that's really tough. You can sit down with somebody, let's say, as a counselor, Rick, or as a pastor, or some other helping profession, and someone can come into your office week in and week out, and you can see the thing but they can't see the thing. Or maybe they see the thing and they go, I can't pay the cost. For whatever reason, that thing has a stranglehold on them. And it's really tough to help people see that this value of yours that you're giving your time and your money and your attention, the fruit of your life to, it's actually producing a lot of dysfunction in your life. Those are difficult, difficult conversations to have. You know, that's a, it's an interesting way to approach this in looking at the, and I guess this is this is why people talk about the number one trait of a leader or the most important skill that a leader a leader can have is self awareness. Because if we can't look ourselves in the mirror, or if we do and we don't see understand what we're seeing, it's gonna be really impossible to not just lead ourselves, but to lead others who are following us, right? So I, I guess, you know, when I, in, in what I hear you saying, those contradictory value systems, it's really fascinating to think through, like, so if I say I value growth, and I have a plaque on my wall that says I value growth, but my actions say I value comfort by I sit on the, t- on the couch and I watch TV all day long, what's the real value? Exactly. And even though I value Netflix or I value Doritos isn't make as <laughs> fancy of a plaque to go on the wall as I value growth, unless I'm specifically talking about my waistline or something. That's that is something that it doesn't matter what the wall says. My actions are revealing that the most important thing in my life is is comfort. Or, you know, the opposite of growth is often, you know, control or complacency. So 
if you, that, man, you walk into a business and you see the three C's of their values being uh, comfort, complacency, and control, <laughs> you might want to leave if you're right. applying for that job, right? But but the funny thing is that, and, and this is a little bit all over the place, but I'm thinking about like as a job interview. So let's say you're mm. a candidate applying for a job somewhere and you get to, you get to the opportunity to interview them just as much as they're interviewing you. You could ask them, tell me about your value system or what do you value? But you can watch in the way that, they behave or you watch in those small interactions do their values on paper align with the values that they're revealing through their actions and if there's not that may not be a good place to work that's it and so i think that's the really thing about culture is that you're talking about these values or these beliefs the hardest part is just getting to know the people enough to see what they truly believe and fighting through the mask that people usually want to put up and, and putting their best uh, you know, foot forward. I, I'm just thinking about, you know, the beliefs thing I, I wrote down. I, I can't believe I, I've ever written this down professionally before, but cats are mammals. <laughs> I feel like I'm back in second grade, but, but think about this, right? You talk about dysfunctional beliefs. If I believe that a cat is an like equine animal or, uh, you know, like an aquarian needs to sit in the ocean or something like that, that's going to change the way I behave Definitely. with or about that cat. And it's going to create some pretty bad situations for that cat most likely. Uh, and, and so, and yet it doesn't matter if someone else doesn't believe that if I have this dysfunctional belief that says that a cat can swim in the ocean and my actions fuel that, then I'm going to create a lot of problems. And so doing that awareness work to go, what are some maybe dysfunctional beliefs or beliefs that I believe to be true, but probably aren't shared by others that are creating some of the dysfunctions in my actions or in my leadership is, is huge. Um, but, but the problem is usually either you're already aware of that process and you're doing the work and just need some tweaks, or not only are you not aware of that process, you're disinterested in it because at the end of the day, you like what you value. I like that. I value money. I like that. I value accomplishment and, um, approval and those things. Right. So I think, Mm. So I, I'm just kind of going totally off off the cuff here, but you know my background in working with grief support. One of the things I've I've believed wholeheartedly over the years is that grief is not just a response to death, but it's a response to loss. And I just kept thinking about what you shared earlier about when you have competing resources from a value standpoint. In order to really change to believe one thing, you almost have to lose the other, which comes at a toll, a cost, and Definitely. an emotional thing, right? So to grieve the loss of comfort. If you want to pursue growth, you have to kind of process the changes that have to come in order to let go of and release or surrender the desire for comfort. And so growth is by nature uncomfortable then. But if growth matters enough, I need to change my actions, which means grieving the loss of comfort and putting myself in a position to accept that growth. I think that was a really profound um, kind of thing that all leaders or all aspiring leaders can, uh, you know, can definitely apply to and relate with. Um, can I say so something about that? My question is just what other nuggets do you have? Yeah, yeah. Go can ahead I and say share something it. about that? Because yeah. in that process, you're kind of like, you know, it's like you're taking a crowbar and you're prying under your actions to figure out, well, what's the value behind that action? But then you also have to dig below the values and start thinking about the stories that you've consumed and ask yourself whether or not this is a true story. You know, um, we all want to, we all want to be based on a true story. I'd like to think that. And maybe sometimes people can get so to the point where they go, I don't care if my story is true or not, as long as it makes me comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. I know in my own life, Rick, like, I don't think we've ever really talked about this before, but for me, 
it's this is, seems like a really silly example, but you know, like basketball was a really big part of my life as a kid. And some of that was really, really good. But some of it, as I look back, you know, that in my life, there was a basketball was a means for me to gain acceptance. But there was a story underneath that as I critically reflect that I consumed as a kid that fed me a particular story that I was trying to live in. And this seems so silly, but it, this I look back and I go, this actually played a significant role. I watched over and over these Michael Jordan playground, Michael Jordan come fly with me videos. All right. So lots of people saw probably the last dance that came out on Netflix when, a, when that was a summer or two ago. And if you know that, you've seen that story, you know how competitive Michael Jordan was. Well, in the 90s, as a 90s kid, there were these like NBA home videos. One of them was called Michael Jordan's Playground, and one of them was called Michael Jordan Come Fly With Me. Well, in Michael Jordan's Playground, it's a story that's like wrapped up with a bunch of NBA highlights of Michael Jordan. And the start of the story is this kid who's playing at a playground all by himself, and he just got cut from the team, and he's really upset. And then all of a sudden, Michael Jordan magically appears and tells this kid, hey, I got cut too from my varsity team, but if you keep working, you can make the team. And then it goes through all these highlight videos of Michael Jordan and these interactions with the kid. I loved that story. But one of the things that story programmed me to believe was somebody that was like, I'm actually kind of wrestling at this age with acceptance, with being accepted. And I believe that if I take on this Michael Jordan work ethic, and in this particular area, I'll get acceptance. I'll climb the social status ladder, right? And I didn't begin to realize that until I got into college and, uh, you know, I had a basketball scholarship. And when I gave up that scholarship, I realized this void, this emptiness, this sense that all of this for the last, you know, eight, 10 years of my life had been bound up with, uh, if I do this, I will be accepted. But there was a story. My parents never told me that. Like my dad, you know, my dad loves sports. My dad never told me, hey, if you get really good at basketball, people will accept you and you'll be popular and that stuff. I saw that in a story that I consumed. And it wasn't, again, in the form of like propositions. The way stories work are these all these sorts of like implicit connections our brains make as we consume stories. And stories begin, they can. And this isn't, I don't, I'm bringing up a negative um, aspect of this, but there's also a positive aspect. The stories we consume, the stories that we take in can actually hack our value system and change our value system and start to reorient us into a different story. And it took me a long time to realize, like, where did that idea come from? Well, part of it was I watched that story over and over again. So we do need to, like, critically, as we take this crowbar, we go, all right, what's below this behavior and practice in my life. Okay, I see this value. Well, what's below the value? Where did I get this value from? There's a story, right? And then we need to start thinking about, well, okay, what sorts of stories am I consuming? And I don't want to sound like the 90s youth pastor. That's like, that was like, hey, you know what? You should only watch, you know, stories that have this really, really positive message in it all the time. But we consume so many stories and we don't really know what those stories are doing in us until they start spilling out of our lives. And that's why like part of my work, and I, I say this in humility, acknowledging people have different views and uh, do this with a spirit, hopefully of generosity and people being able to have um, charitable conversations together. I really care about people finding a true story. And um, 
you know, there's certain things I know I'm living in right now that are not part of that true story. And that story expands and grows. And pastors talk about things like repentance. And there's a word, there's a way in which that has a really nasty, you know, punitive, puritanical connotation that when we talk about things like repentance, we're talking about turn or burn, sinner. But uh, metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. And all metanoia means is to change the way you see. It's actually just a, a different way of seeing. And so I take very seriously the work of repentance in my own life and the work of people that I surround myself with because I always want to be oriented around a true story. Um, that's the goal. And I, I believe that as I become, my life becomes more in harmony with a true story, that it's also going to become more functional, that it's also going to be good. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be wealthy or famous. Those are, that's part of a competing story, right? And so we start interrogating some of these stories about, well, what's the good life? And there's people, Rick, you know, you've done a lot more with people working in business and, and nonprofit outside of religious institutions. But you know, there are people that have come to our age, you know, they spent a lot of time accumulating resources, pursuing financial gain, all of this stuff. And they get to a point where they hit this midlife crisis and they go, man, this stuff feels actually really, really empty. And that emptiness to me is part of re the realization that's like, this might not be part of the true story of how the world works and what the good life is and what's purpose look like and what, is, what does it mean for my life to have any significance? That's huge. Look, so you just said something. I wrote it down and, and I feel like this needs to be on the wall of everyone. You, the, the, the true root meaning of the word repentance, you're right. If we remove it from a, a church setting or a, a really intense, to go like to change the way that you see. I mean, we, we look, we talk about the word like worldview, like the, or yes. what are the lenses that you see the world yes. through? And, and from a therapeutic standpoint, a counseling standpoint, uh, has a similar thing of like so many people's kind of, uh, less than healthy or dysfunctional behaviors are fueled by an incorrect set of lenses that they see the world through or see certain interactions through, but it's not necessarily that somebody told them that thing. It's just, that's how they've kind of adapted. And so by, you know, holding up the mirror or working with somebody professionally, whether it's a, a counselor a pastor, a consultant, anybody to help an outside perspective, um, come in and look at those beliefs that are revealed, it, it can be really powerful. But I, I'm just, I'm thinking about, you know, the examples that you shared from Europe, bringing with the, with the basketball, you know, I, I wrote down, Earlier, I was like, so what? What was my kind of struggle in all that? And and I think about the idea. I was I was class clown, class clown four years in a row in high school, and you know it came with some perks. I don't know what all the perks were, other than <laughs> you, know, you get your weird photo. Yeah, detentions. Uh, the photo in the yearbook of class clown, and but also you know the the negatives that come with it. Of oh, this guy is going to be a cut up. He's going to you know get in trouble and all those things. But but what I as I grew out of that from high school into young adulthood, like. I believe, similarly to you, that the best way to get a valued, um, you know, per, you know, people's um, kind of approval and things was through humor. And so you try everything you you can to make a good first impression, to make people laugh, smile. 
But in my case, and we shared a lot about this last year on your podcast about kind of my journey and struggles, and I'll share that some of the, the more detailed parts of that on this uh, podcast in future episodes, but went through a really dark season of life. And, and one of the few things that fueled that dark season was this belief that my value and, and worth as a person is based on what people think about me. And the, what, the, the way to get people to positively think about me was through humor. But if you have this darkness inside of you, sometimes it can be hard to make people laugh. And so what happens when that goes away? Do you lose your value? Do you lose your worth? And and what do you do to try to regain that? And so that was one of those default things. I didn't know that one of my core values was fun, but my life actions were doing that. But as I was reflecting, even preparing for this episode, I started writing down like, so if I was to create my own plaques on the wall, like what do my actions reveal um, about my values like what do I truly value and and actually fun made my top three and I realized I was like everything I do in life I hate it when it's bland and so if I can add some fun into it that's really a way to make it beneficial but the difference in belief is is I can keep the same value statement of fun or whatever you know fun's not very doesn't make a very big sign on your wall I might have to use a much longer word with more syllables you'll you'll have to help me out with that part <laughs> but um, but the point of it is, is that if I believe that fun is a taking activity and I need to derive value and worth from that, then I use fun to get my needs met. However, if I believe fun is a tool to serve others, I can still use that same word, but I can invest fun into people. So from a, and I, I think you can loosely then connect fun with optimism and you can even broaden that out to hope i'm bringing a sense of lightness or um positivity into a situation through a joke or through optimism or a belief in something in a positive outcome and and so i think about that term but it's the same value but it's used in a different way one is to take and one is to give and so that's a really interesting kind of wrinkle in the whole belief piece and values but and you alluded to this earlier there's such a symbiotic relationship between values and beliefs, right? And so beliefs fuel your values, but values kind of reveal your your beliefs, right? So I think that's a really interesting uh, thing. Plus I tried, I had a quota to try to use more uh, larger words with with longer syllables in them because I knew you were going to be on the podcast. Uh, for those who are listening, Paul hosts an amazing podcast called Deep Talks. And uh, one of my values that's in competition of your values is I try to keep as many things simple as possible. That's good. I feel like you have a criteria or a quota of every word has to at least have six or seven syllables in it. So uh, I just wanted to share that, though, because it is interesting that, um, you know, they work so hand in hand together and that your values are really fueled by your lease, even if your values are similar with, compo- you know, with competing belief systems. Yeah. And then we have these values that might be unique to us, too. And they can complement each other. So once we get outside of, and maybe we even critically critically uh, interrogate one of the values of our culture as Americans, uh, Heert Hofsvede was a Dutch social psychologist who, um, working with IBM, did cross groundbreaking cross cultural research in the starting in the 1970s. He started doing this, where they were trying to his research was trying to get an understanding of what are the predominant values of different national uh, social cultures in the world. So when obviously when you travel from the United States to Japan, you realize, man, there's cultural differences, right? Um, from the United States to Syria, there are cultural differences. Um, one of the things that uh, Hosfidi's research revealed was that the United States was far and above among the 100 and I believe 70 nations they did evaluative work on. 
we had far and away the greatest value for individualism. Next closest was maybe Australia. So that's why maybe you could go to Australia and feel a sense of kindredness with Aussies who also have this value of individualism. I bring that up because we do need to, if we critically evaluate stuff like our, our overemphasis on individualism, we can start to see that, Rick, your value for fun and the way that that can be oriented towards something that is good, true, and beautiful, and it actually can be a vehicle that points beyond you as opposed to just like selfishly hoarding or drawing attention, being a black hole for that stuff. That, that can actually be of benefit when you get around someone like me that my wife jokes, like, you have to tell me when you're excited, Paul. Like, tell, you know, is that your excited face? <laughs> you know? Give me some kind of feedback some here, sort of right? Feedback. I'm, I'm prone more to probably like introspection and melancholy at times. Um, and not all of that is good. But the point I bring up in that is that there can be you coming, you know, the, the very title of what you, what you call your podcast, Rick, like beyond the image. Once you get beyond that image that we present to other people just to get acceptance and you start settling into what are the unique values that make me significant, that help me see that I do play a particular role in this overarching story. I'm not the main character, right? I'm not the main character, but Rick, you play a unique role in this overarching story that I'm also in and we're woven into this story together. And I have certain things that I go, well, these are values that I really find valuable that aren't in collision with your values, Rick, but they're in harmony together. So on like a practical side, when businesses, nonprofits are, are, th- are thinking about hiring people, right? Um, it's really important that you go through a discernment process as to whether or not you're trying to reproduce, whether you're the hiring manager or you're in that position, the, the HR person, whoever's making the hiring decision, that you're not just reproducing clones of yourself, right? That you realize, oh, this other person has maybe some different values that aren't bad. They don't produce dysfunction. They just have a different set of emphases, like a specialization. And that actually can be in harmony with some of the things I bring to the table. And that's actually for our collective good. Um, and once we start talking about collective things, you know, people get suspicious of Marxism and communism. And that's, I'm not, I'm not trying to sneak that in in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying we can critically interrogate our over-reliance on individualism. And part of that is realizing that you have something, Rick, that you bring to the table that's special and unique. It's not a threat to me. It's actually something for my benefit, too, and I can celebrate it. Um, as well as I bring something to the table that you don't have to copy. You know, you don't have to turn your, your podcast into the intersection of theology and philosophy and all that stuff. You can, you can do what is within you to do that. You know, again, I like fully believe that's something you were made to do and I can celebrate it and uh, see it as good as well. That's what's cool about the idea of values being separate from beliefs, too, because you can take two people who believe the same thing or similar things in the sense of we're both heading in a similar direction, but the way that you get there might be different and the way that what you value to do it separate from. So as we're kind of wrapping this discussion up, you know, let's take it to a practical sense, right? So I'm a leader, I'm hiring, and I'm starting to buy into this idea that, wow, I'm really, I've been spinning my wheel because I'm not hiring for value. I'm not hiring for culture. I'm hiring for skills or competency. I'm getting high turnover. So 
so looking at the sense of values and, and beliefs, you know, how, how do I not necessarily replicate myself as a clone for like everyone who thinks the same way about things, but yet they believe the same thing uh, mm. that I believe, right? Because I think there's the differentiation and maybe the values are that middle ground, right? So my values might be aligned, not just what I believe, but the actions that I take in order to facilitate those beliefs, right? So what, what, how can we take this from a practical, uh, to a practical sense where we're talking directly to a leader who's got resumes on their desk right now and going, what's the determining factor? And can I really buy into this process that beliefs and values are a vital part of my leadership going forward? What, do you have anything that you'd like to share to that person or uh, as they're making those decisions or thinking through that process at all? Yeah, I mean, you definitely want to be explicit in stating your values, to the person that's coming, whether you're doing volunteer work, you know, so in my current role, I, I don't do uh, hiring and, and firing per se. I suppose there are people that work under me that I, I could bring up and say, hey, this person needs to get let, let go, but that, that hasn't happened yet. For In my case, it's, it's a lot more to do with volunteers, uh, volunteers that work in specific areas of our, of our church life, and they serve in those particular areas. And it is really important that you state your values clearly to them. Um, if you don't state that and that, you know, a lot of people just want to jump in because in a work setting, it's like, man, I need a paycheck. I saw this job posting. Uh, times are hard, right? And they get into something and they, they get halfway through and it's, it's similar to dating, right? You want to be as explicit up front in that interview process, in that discernment process as you can. Um, I, you know, if you don't do that, that's that's certainly an issue. Um, you know, I think this there's some different ways that nonprofits, corporations, churches, uh, other institutions like that have maybe a different set of rules. You know, so for example, it would not be uncommon in at least some nonprofit settings to have as part of an interview process for somebody to go through something like a a personality profile evaluation. Now, doing that sort of thing in the corporate world, in particular businesses, that that might not be kosher. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't have enough experience in that world. My wife works in that world, and but if you can have even a sense of uh, in your interview process for what is this person's, you know, whether it's a strength finders test, uh, Myers Briggs, um, Enneagram. Uh, I, I really like the Big Five personality test. Um, those are sorts of metrics that help you understand what kind of natural predisposition a person brings to the table. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to do with their um, beliefs per se, but it definitely shows you their values, right? So you might not think of it this way, but when you do a strength finders test or something like that, or the Enneagram, it is actually revealing in some ways some of those like hardwired values that you seem to have. Um, and as you, you become aware of that, if you be, can become aware of that on the front side with somebody in the discernment process, you might go, hey, you know what? Like, I realize that probably in this particular role, um, it's going to require this kind of particular personality or at least predisposition. And putting somebody in into a role that um, doesn't mesh with those certain predisposed values can, you know, it can create a lot of conflict for people um, over the long it's haul. A, I think about like, so we use the example fun. If I was to work in an administrative position that was uh, 
very bland and mundane and very uh, repetitive, it would be very difficult for me to function in that role because part of the fun is the excitement or the thrill, right? There's not much thrill, so I would always have to generate it, but that might come as a distraction to the performance of the job. And and I guess equating those like strengths-based assessments with your uh, values is really interesting because the value is kind of like your your action, uh, the actionable part of your, your belief system. So if I believe that fun is a powerful tool for, for growth, like, well, that's kind of an interesting statement. It's not maybe as cut and dry as a cat is a mammal, but yeah, the way my life, you know, it's, it adds color, it adds flavor, right? And in looking at one of your uh, maybe unstated things, but would be like, if you believe that uh, like philosophy or like intellectual discussion or kind of parking in a, in a thought and letting the, the it marinate uh, and letting the emotions kind of go is a way to like increase depth of understanding well then your actions are going to fuel that right so I, I think it's a really interesting thing to say and then but if we both have the similar belief of um you know that personal growth is possible right or healing and transformation are possible or any kind of depth that if you bring a spirituality of, of things into that but our approach from our value system are two different means. It can create a really interesting balance in a team. So if I'm hiring and I'm looking at like what's important to this position, if I can script out like here's the role, what are not what are the traits or education I need, but what are the attributes of a person yes, that would make them good. succeed in this role? Then I can ask those kinds of questions that are still job performance based questions. But also the thing I think that people can can hear too is like from a hiring perspective. If the belief is a crucial part of your business from a from a mission standpoint, and if you can connect that belief to your mission, then you have the ability to ask those kinds of questions in an interview, right? So like in a pastoral context, you're preaching a certain message. So of course, the person that you hire as a candidate should share that belief. Therefore, because it's vital to your business or your, your organization, you can ask those questions. But in a business setting, People don't have to be afraid of those things too, as long as it's connecting from what I understand. And again, I'm not an HR pro by yeah. any means, so you need to look into the legalities of yeah, that. But right, right, right. If, if, it's, if you can connect the, the belief system to the mission and the operation of that position, then that's really vital. And that's how you create really unifying cultures in your organization. Everyone has different skill sets and what they bring to the table, but people believe the same kinds of things, which can be incredibly unifying as an organization. And I feel like unity is one of those huge tools that increase your impact as an organization more so than a bunch of individuals trying to achieve individual goals. Yeah, and especially, again, that's, I'm glad you bring up because there could be legality issues with taking... Uh, yeah, do not take this some, as yeah, HR advice, no, no, please. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but let's say this, these are the sorts of questions that could still come up in an interview without you necessarily necessarily saying, hey, I need you to take this specific evaluation is to say, hey, do you know what your strengths are? Have you ever taken a strengths finders test? And, you know, that's a good, that's a, certainly a question that would probably be in most cases acceptable. You know, you're not asking somebody, can you fill out this so we get particular info, but do you have an awareness of this? So for me, I'm really deeply aware, let's use the big five personality test. I'm deeply aware that I score really, really high in openness. People that score really, really high in openness tend to, across the board, not simultaneously score really high in orderliness or conscientiousness. That's something I've had to work on to become more orderly and conscientious to make sure that thing, I have an organized system for things because my openness to experiences can sometimes tend to go like, well, I, I don't want to take the time to organize this thing because I'd rather 
like explore or think through it. So that's something I've really had to work on. But I also realize that people, I need people in my life, whether they're friends, whether they're people that work with me or serve in our particular context, I need conscientious people that are really high in orderliness in order to accomplish the mission and vision of our organization. What that's going to, I need to be aware of this though. If I'm aware that highly uh, conscientious people statistically, you know, so the big five scores out of 100, if you score like a 95 percentile in conscientiousness and orderliness, it is very much unlikely that you're also scoring like in the 90th percentile for openness to experience. For whatever reason, it's like, you know, building a character in a video game, you only have so many XP points and you can dedicate them to certain skills, but you can't have them all. It's not even a deficiency. It's just the way we need each other. If I have awareness of that, I need to be aware that if we have a weakness in our particular organization where we need some more orderliness, we need a manager. Like we need like a mid-level manager who's great at getting people on schedules. They're going to get all of the receipts, you know, they're going to cover all those nitty gritty details and they love that stuff. Their desk is never messy. They are always on point. They never leave McDonald's fry cartons in their car. They are orderly. If you are not that, you should be able to recognize that that is actually a contribution to you. If you can find a way to do your mission in harmony together, because if you have that weakness, that's certainly, again, I've been primarily in the nonprofit and in the church world and in, uh, you know, different uh, religious institutions. I have seen places that have, and I've been in places that have really, really brilliant visionary leaders that are high in openness, but really low in conscientiousness, and their visions never happen. They never get made manifest. And, and that's not a fault on them. It's not to say like you should be less open to experiences, less visionary, but what it probably does mean is like you're going to need to learn to live with someone else on your team that's really high in conscientiousness and they just don't care about the wild dream that you have until it actually happens and you start giving them the blueprint for it or they start developing the blueprint for it. So those are the sorts of ways in which if we become more acutely aware of this stuff and we can ask good questions both as someone going through an interview process and being on the other end, uh, we can begin to maybe catch some things on the front end that will help us be more successful in fulfilling those particular things that we feel like this is the role our institution plays in the story. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to, to, to view it. In fact, I, I'm reminded of the book Start, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, who just talks about the passion. He gives case studies of different things of you can have all this passion and these huge ideas, and those are really crucial to bringing the, the heart of what you want to do alive. But without the what person or the how person who's going to help you execute that mission, uh, that's why there's so many what he calls uh, you know starving artists. You have all these people with these wild dreams and passions, but they can't operational uh, operationalize it enough to actually make it come to fruition. And, and it's those what people or those how people that really can help with the strategy. And he calls it like increasing the size of your megaphone, right? So it's it's you have this message, but if you don't know how if you don't have a megaphone, there's nobody else hearing it. If that operational person can come in and enhance it, you're going to be able to take that message that you have and spread it further. Um, the challenge comes is when you reprioritize those and coming back to full circle, our beliefs and values. If I believe that the how and the what are more 
more important than the why from a hiring decision, let's say there's a leadership transition, um, you're going to prioritize the wrong thing and it's going to change your culture because you've now stated based on your actions of a hiring person, this is now the new most important thing to me. And and you'll get that result. But the challenge is, is, is that the result you wanted to? Yeah. Your action in hiring change your beliefs or reveal your beliefs that we didn't actually know until you made that decision or that action, right? So I think that's a really powerful way for someone to, you know, who's listening, maybe Maybe you're a small business owner listening or you're you're interested in leadership, but you're just kind of getting ready to put your toe into the water. Um, know that if you can really connect your, um, you know, get, get connected to what you really believe and what your values are um, or explore those and maybe on the on the fly figuring out those are by, by your actions, you're going to make really sound leadership decisions that are based on principles that you can then um, – Build strong teams around that are going to transcend you and help you sustain that organization and make it bigger than just what you thought it could be possible. But without that, there's just not enough clarity. I think that was a big word that you used earlier. And there's not enough unity in in doing it to help the, the organization really make a true impact other than short-term gains, potentially financially or short-term progress. But that long-term sustainability without having a united culture is just so, so hard to do. And so I'm, I, I think it's a good way to kind of tie all that up that we, we've talked about. And I tell you what, you know, going into this interview, um, you, you have this like thought of how's things going to go and what are we going to talk about? But I, I never thought we'd talk about cats. That's for sure. That was not <laughs> on my list. But I tell you what, this I've learned so much from listening to you bring this totally unique perspective. And maybe I'll do a follow up episode to this about uh, belief and values uh, for taking this conversation and making it a little more practical, too, because this provided so much of a, a deep insight into the world of beliefs and values and story that is going to be really beneficial for a lot of people. I really appreciate the insight that you brought to this. Thanks, poll. Rick. Yeah, I'd love to do that because, again, I I don't know if you're going to post video of this or not. And I, I have to adjust my camera to see it. But you can kind of see I've got a whiteboard back there. And it's got this thing I like to call the my hierarchy of values. Um and one of the things that can be really helpful is to actually walk people through this specific process of laying out, can I name the behaviors and practices of my day? And I can just walk people through it, give them a nugget real quick here. I actually really want to write down my behaviors and practices that I do, like split up your time and like how many ever hours you got a week? What do I give to this at the very bottom of the period pyramid? Above that is your goals, because if you continue to do this, you are aimed in particular direction towards a particular target, whether you like to or not. So if I continue to do this, what does this lead to, right? So I spent, you know, I try to go to the gym four hours a week. One of my goals in doing that is that I want to be able to keep playing sports with my kids as they get older. So if I keep doing that, am I able to hit that goal? The tier above that is where we want to start stating your values, so you can do this both ways. You can do it from bottom up, like I'm describing now, where you're evaluating your time, the way you use your time. What is that aim towards? What do those goals and aims reveal about my values? So what is behind that value of trying to stay healthy for my kids? Well, I think I have this value of like, I actually really cherish the relationship I have with my children. I want to instill in them discipline. So they want to see, I want them to see that dad has got self-discipline. Self-discipline is a value. Resilience is a value on, on my board as well. Above that is like the story. So can I put what I think the story is? Now, this is really hard to do sometimes. The story of what all of life is about in like two sentences. 
and my role in it. And then the next tier above that, and I know this can spook some people out, but functionally, the tier above that is the God or gods that I functionally serve. Even if you're not comfortable with the idea of God or gods, we can, we can just call that as an archetype, a placeholder, right? Because what, what's the author of that story? So um, we can talk more about this another time, but a really good thing people can do is just go through that process and to go through it two ways. You go bottom up where you start with the behaviors, but then go top down and go, all right, what do I actually believe is the true story? What should my values be? If these are the values that I should have and really want to have, what aims and goals should I take? And then how does that change how I'm spending my time? And then you compare those two pyramids and you go, what's the difference? Because this one's the actual way I live. This is the ideal. And so that's even just one. We can we could spend more time about that um, another time. But I thought at least I'd throw that in for people. They could they could try jotting some of that down on a whiteboard at home. Right. Carrie and I yeah, have walk, done that together. Yeah. Walk, th- walk through that process with, with people one more time because yep. I think this is this is something that everyone can can do but also it's a way to to get some quick clarity about am i missing the mark on my values and beliefs right so th- walk through that that, yeah. ups, that that first pyramid that you described first so yeah. we can kind of uh so if you picture uh, dissect it a little yeah, bit if you picture a pyramid um at the very bottom of the pyramid you can write behaviors and practices and you make a line and just above that you can write goals or aims whatever you want to call it it's this is what your behaviors and practices are aimed towards the tier just above that is your values. That's where you can start writing in on that level, like both what are the values that are currently exist in my life <laughs> based on this. And then you could make a separate pyramid that goes, well, these are the ideal values that I actually really want to inhabit and make manifest. The tier above that is your guiding story. And then I put at the very top, but if people are uncomfortable with this, they can't, they don't have to include it. But uh, I think whether you believe this, like uh, to use one of those multi-syllable terms, whether you believe ontologically in a god or you're just fine with it symbolically. <laughs> um, but I think you used the word author earlier, yeah. the author of that story, right? Yes. Because sometimes, right, so it, from a spiritual perspective, you know, it could be from the Bible or it could be from other spiritual practices, or, you know, depending on what your background is. But sometimes the author of our story is a is a bad experience we had when we were a kid. Yes. It could be trauma. Yeah. Yep. It could be uh, a perceived situation that because we were young we didn't we didn't understand fully, and there's actually a different meaning to it that we didn't pick up on because we were young. So I think by phrasing it, author gives people flexibility based on what the belief is. Yeah. To potentially, uh, you know really provide some some insight into totally. it because if it's a positive belief it might have come from a really positive you know um author but the author could be a, a bad experience or bad uh bad thinking it, it can, could be a you know trauma anything it can also be a value that takes too high of precedent in our life and when that value is elevated to the very top it's out of order um and the reason why i use god is not even just because i'm a pastor and have these particular beliefs but even as a guy that studied history and ancient history um, this helps us understand the way ancient people thought a lot more. So again, a quick example of this would be the city of Athens. The city of Athens in ancient history, they had a patron goddess, which was Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. So at top the Acropolis, the highest point in Athens, they built a temple dedicated to Athena. Now, what was Athens known for? 
Athens was the center for philosophy, was for, for the pursuit of wisdom. You know, that's what philosophy actually meant, lover of wisdom. And, and that's what it was known for around the world. The God that they idolized and actually made into symbolic form and elevated to the very top of their city ended up being the thing that was actually made manifest in their culture. Now, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the value there and then they already put it up top? Or did they get an idea about, man, what is the thing we should pursue the most? Wisdom. How should we express that? Well, we've got this story about one of the Olympian gods, Athena. She's the goddess of wisdom. So I use that to help people see even how like in the ancient world, this is kind of how all ancient civilizations and honestly, modern civilizations are all structured. Just um, in January, when the GameStop run happened uh, in, in, on Wall Street, one of the unique actions that um, the New York Counterterrorist Department took, because they were concerned that this might be the beginning of some sort of financial revolution, is they sent armed guards to protect the Wall Street bull, the statue of the bull on Wall Street. Now, are they really protecting the whatever that bull is made of, or are they protecting the idea behind it? So um, for me, I'm fine with saying, well, the Wall Street bull to me is a symbol of a particular kind of God, right? When it's out of balance, that God is greed. And if yeah. that moves to the top, there's a bunch of dysfunction. So God or author, as long as we realize that there are beyond the story, there is, there's kind of a supreme value that can kind of be made manifest in the story or some sort of author. And again, this isn't like, you know, Jesus smuggling. I'm not trying to proselytize. It's just to help people think about the world in a way that um, people long before our particular like secular age and human history thought about the world too. It makes sense. If we, if we derive our personal value from certain things, then we're more likely to place that item as God in our life, right? So if I derived my value as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, based on what people thought about me, then their acceptance and their approval is going to drive my actions and behaviors because I need that desperately. Now, where the, the author of that belief came from is what I'd have to explore from a, from like a psychological standpoint or therapeutic standpoint, but that would be more likely to be to fulfill that 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 uh, both the guiding story and the author or the God spot in the sense of if I was really evaluating this as a young person. Um, but even as an adult, we all have things that we place on that seat of of things, and sometimes they're intentional, and sometimes they're not, and so we don't understand it until we reveal or you know analyze our actions to see what is revealed. So for someone who's in a leadership perspective. Uh, who who does value money more than mission or values profits more than people, chances are they aren't aware of it, right? Right. So so maybe that person's listening to this podcast right now and going, you know, I never once thought about how my actions to slash employee benefits to increase the profit of this organization would affect the people on my team, but I'm getting ridiculously high turnover. I'm getting bad reviews. I'm just having, uh, I'm not attracting the right candidates and I don't understand why. Well, maybe this is a time to not change the job post, but to reevaluate your belief system as a leader, as an entrepreneur to go, is this belief that money is the most important thing or profits is the most important thing and that that's to be prioritized over people? Is this harming my organization? Is this harming my long-term success or my long-term you know business outlook and i think that's a really that's why this tool can be really powerful and i wanted to spend some time going back to it to to give someone the permission to hit the pause button and evaluate their belief system to to then 
change the way that you lead, but then also to then change the way that your organization functions because of your belief system, right? Yeah, and that's where it's a great tool. That's where you get to that level of critiquing the story. Because that guy you're talking about who may not have even been aware that they're really pursuing profits or greed over other human beings, they might not have even been aware of it, but through their training, whether that was uh, formal training in a university setting or they just grew up around particular people and the way they did business a particular way and that was the story that they learned, that's just kind of, again, back to the very first thing we talked about. The way they made meaning in life was in the story that was told to them. And they've never even thought about a different story sometimes, right? Yeah. And so- So be able to evaluate that story to look at it is huge. I think that's, I love the connection between story and and beliefs, both as a storyteller, but also as a person who loves to, I guess you could use the word consume stories or to, you know, consume medium that, uh, media that has stories as a big part of that. To know that those things ultimately are a huge part of the foundational belief system they have not just individually, but as a leader who are, who is influencing other people through our actions is is really really cool. It's really important, Paul. This has been amazing, and I and I just you know out, out of respect for your time and stuff, I want to start to wrap up here. But I would love to, for you to give uh, people just a chance to connect with you more uh, online, and also, is there anything that you're working on right now or involved with that you'd like to let listeners know about that they can uh, follow or participate in? Yeah, sure. I mean, if people are interested in the kind of exploration of theology and the intersection of theology with our culture, cultural stories, science, philosophy, all of that stuff, they can certainly check out my podcast. Admittedly, I'm, uh, I'm a professing Christian and I operate that within the like a broad historic Christian framework, but it's charitable, nuanced. Hopefully, I even just got some feedback from somebody the other day that said, hey, you know, I listen and I share this with my friends that you know, maybe atheists or come from different backgrounds because I know that they're going to get something respectful even if they disagree with it. So that's my goal, but just being honest about where my convictional location is. Um, So if you're interested in these sorts of stuff, you can check out my podcast. It's called Exploring uh, Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. Um, Yeah, you know, it's available on Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys listen and subscribe to podcasts. And if you want to connect with me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and not really active on Facebook, but yeah, if you wanted to connect or reach out with any sort of questions that you had after listening to this, I, I, I'm glad to try to engage with those questions. Yeah, and I love I love your podcast. And admittedly, I was just I was joking around earlier, but you know, as someone who tries to keep the syllable limit in a in a word very small, uh, I've listened to your podcast on numerous occasions, and I just find myself going, "This is amazing." I may not understand some of the specific words they just used, but the content and the conversations. Uh, are incredible, but I also love the openness and the realness in the approach because I think no matter what someone believes as they listen to the conversations that are taking place, there's such an intellectual focus that can be really engaging and respectful for people where it's not necessarily highly emotional driven content or highly, um, uh, biased content in certain aspects, you know, where so it's going to be standoffish. It's such an amazingly um, well-crafted kind of conversation, oh, even though it's all kind of off the cuff. It's just generally people who have really insightful things to say and share. And I've learned a lot from it as well. And so I really, um, really value that a lot. So I encourage people to check that out as well. Paul, uh, thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, you know, we, thanks for you me. and I grew up as friends and had spent a ton of time together in yeah. various uh, arenas. And so from a professional standpoint, to be able to dive into a topic like this is such a treat for me and, and for listeners. And I hope that you um, 
at home listening to this uh, got a lot of value out of this and would uh, really you know love to have you back on, Paul, anytime to, to kind of take another step in this conversation about beliefs and values and culture. No, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. No. Washing my hands of this. No, In fact, no, I'm changing no. prof- the next, professions. The next podcast the next, done. The next one's got to be on '90s wrestling. Um, that's the that's the one we got to do. <laughs> the philosophy and belief system of '90s wrestlers. Yeah, '90s '90s wrestling, '90s youth group stories. I'm sure that's that's what's got to be next. But no, this is great. I, I like really it. Appreciate it, man. That's awesome. My pleasure. Thanks again, Paul. All right, take care.